We begin a new series tonight. We are in the book of Ephesians. It's been about 10 years since we have uh, taken the book apart before. So we'll, we'll go into all six chapters here. And we will take a look at the, um, the um, kingdom of heaven, the mystery of the kingdom, since this book, probably more so than any other, defines the church age and tells us things about the church age. So we want to make sure we understand the church age, the kingdom that we are in. We notice that God put a pause or a break in the prophecy, or did not put a pause or a break in the prophecies about the mission of the Messiah. And even when Jesus went around, he would read the prophecies, but only the part that pertained to his, his visit at that time, which caused some confusion with the people. But the two purposes of Messiah, in short, was the first was to redeem, and then the second would be to rule. And Jesus would read the parts of the redemption and leave out the part of the ruling. Now, was this done to bring, just to to keep the whole matter confused? Was the confusion intentional? Was this done to keep it a mystery? So we're going to take a look at the, the mystery of the church. If you saw up on Facebook, I saw this summary, and I thought it was the best summary I've seen on the book of Ephesians, that the first, that the, well, the, the epistle of Ephesians is basically a statement of your heavenly bank account. The first, first half tells you what's in the account. The second half tells you how to spend it, how to use it. doesn't do you any good if you have all that wealth laid up if you don't know how to use it. So the second half tells us what to do with it, how to, how to put it to work. The first half tells you what you have. Well, you got to know what you have first before you go out there and use it. How many times have you gone out and checked your bank just to make sure that you had enough, know what you had to use before you go out into the store and, and start to, to do things? So we're going to take a look here at the mystery of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 13, Verse 10, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now we understand this to be mostly because they were open to the revelation that he was speaking to them, and the other people were not. They had hard hearts, they had closed hearts, but they were open. But when he speaks here of the kingdom of heaven, This is the coming kingdom. Think about this from the standpoint of the disciples and from the people there. If Messiah comes and he speaks of a coming kingdom, what kingdom in your mind does he speak of? It would be the kingdom that we would call the millennial kingdom. Because this is in their mind, because again, the prophecies in the Old Testament... They merge the first and second uh, purposes of the Messiah into one. Jesus comes along and separates it. But they still have that singular mentality. The Messiah comes, he redeems, and he sets up his kingdom. So they're looking for Messiah to set up their kingdom. So when Jesus teaches about the kingdom, the kingdom they expect is the millennial kingdom. If they are expecting the wrong kingdom, can they truly understand what Jesus is teaching? Now, Jesus knows where they're coming from, right? Look at what he says. Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. If he's expecting them to receive his teaching on the kingdom and they're expecting a different kingdom than he's teaching about, how is it that he expects them to get the right message? That's one of our first questions here. For whoever has, to him more will be given and he will have abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, 
I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand and in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled which says hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now if the kingdom of heaven is the millennial kingdom, Why is it important for the disciples to know about it since it's so far off? The kingdom of the the millennial kingdom is not for, as we've found out, you know, thousands of years. Certainly none of them was going to be alive to get it. Why is Jesus teaching them principles of the millennial kingdom if they're not going to be there to move into it? Now here we have a hint at some different mysteries that are going on. Old Testament mystery is not New Testament mystery. Things that were hidden from Old Testament saints are not things that are hidden from us. We are able to look into things that the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament saints desired to look into. We're able to look into things that angels desired to look into. Things that were not revealed in the Old Testament are revealed in the New Testament. In this age, it would seem to to come that since we are walking in some understanding that they were not able to walk in in the Old Testament, it would also seem to come about that there is some understanding that will be still future that we're not walking in now. That there's some um, millennial teaching, millennial truths that we won't understand at this time. That's not referred to here. But then it's not referred to in the Old Testament that they don't know. They thought they did. Now the things that are hidden from New Testament saints, there are some which are hidden because they don't pursue it. There are some things that are hidden because their walk won't sustain it. And there are some things that are hidden because it's not to be revealed yet. There are some truths that are not in our grasp that we are to pursue and to obtain. But there are some truths that are not for us to know yet. These are some of the things I'm pretty convinced that when it comes to doctrines of devils, people get a a, a whimsical view of something that is to come and the, the devil shows up with a revelation that satisfies them. And they go on off and they teach that thing and they lead many astray. So we have to be careful, certainly with some of those. Over in Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. Now he's teaching parables. Again, we saw the purpose of parables was so that they would hear but not understand that they would not see because it was given to them to know the the keys of the kingdom the things that were of the kingdom so when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart <clears throat> this verse limits the time period with which this kingdom can op- can operate the kingdom that he speaks of at this point, cannot be the millennial kingdom because who is not operating in the millennial kingdom? The wicked one is not operating. He can't go around and steal what is sown because he's locked up. They're expecting millennial kingdom teaching. Jesus knows they're expecting millennial kingdom teaching, but he apparently is not teaching about the millennial kingdom. How are they going to understand this? Verse 24. 
Jump down there. And another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Once again, there we have an enemy. But when the, ga- the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it have tares? <clears throat> he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, it will, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now the tares parable speaks of a separation at the end. The separation at the end would seem to lend itself to the end of the tribulation when the evil ones are removed from the earth and those that are good are remained. The the judgment that would come upon there. So that too would seem to lend to something before the millennial kingdom. In Matthew 31, another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And then he says another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. So here we see the continued corruption. The continued corruption of the the kingdom of, of heaven here. That the kingdom would continue to be uh be affected in this way. And we've, we spent time getting into these parables before. Some people try and make the mustard seed be a, a real, real good looking parable. But, uh, we know that that is not because of the different aspects of this. The mustard seed is a bush, should not become a tree, it changes its nature. And in Jesus' parables, the birds are always, the birds are always bad. The birds come and eat the seed. Birds making their home in the tree does not mean that it's a nice picture. This is a bad picture. So this is the coming corruption of the kingdom, which we certainly see in the church age. In verse 34, And these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is coming in and he is speaking things that have not been made known since the foundation of the world, but now is the time to make them known. And so he's going around and he's teaching on these things. So the kingdom of heaven is a mystery. It's, it's something that was, that was kept away. But is the kingdom of heaven simply the millennial kingdom Or is the kingdom of heaven something different? Now, it says that it's a mystery. It's something that was not known. If you look at what was known by the disciples, by the people of that day, and even the people in the Old Testament, one thing they did know is that a king is coming. That was not a mystery. They knew a king was coming. They knew Messiah was coming. And Messiah was coming as a king. And they knew that Messiah was coming to set up a kingdom. The disciples asked Jesus, will you at this time set up the kingdom? They're, they expected a kingdom. That is not a mystery. It is not a mystery that Jesus is coming, that he is going to be a king, and that he will have a kingdom. So what exactly is the mystery? What is it that is not known? In Luke chapter 19, verse 11, Now, as he heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem. Because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They thought the millennial kingdom was was coming. That Jesus was close to Jerusalem. Messiah was coming to Jerusalem. Messiah was going to, in Jerusalem, set up his kingdom. They saw Jesus moving in that direction. So this all brought the expectation that Jesus is going to the Jerusalem and we're expecting his kingdom. They're expecting it now. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself 
a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minus, and said to them, Do business till I come. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We have, we will not have this man to reign over us. It seems awfully odd Jesus throws that in there, doesn't it? But he just kind of puts this part in as the citizens hated him. And they sent people after him to let him know, you will not reign over us. You won't do it. We're not going to have it. In the accounts with Pilate, and you can go back into the Gospels, <clears throat> you can read it in, in uh, I believe, all four of them. You'll have a different aspect of it, but still you come to the same part that the Jews rejected Jesus as their king. Is there any doubt, in the and all four of them carried it, is there any doubt that the Jews did not want Jesus to reign over them? They didn't use those exact words that Jesus used in the parable, but they said, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And they rejected Jesus as being their king. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has come to be the Redeemer. But the second part of his mission is to set up a kingdom. Now in the book of Daniel, we have the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And we know they're divided into three sections. The most important of them is the division between the 69th and the 70th week. They understood the time frame of that prophecy. They knew they were coming to the end of this time frame and that Messiah would be coming. They did not understand there would be a pause between the 69th and 70th week. If you read the Old Testament, there is no pause. If you read the book of Daniel, there is no pause. We go from the 69th week to the 70th week. We read the prophecies about Messiah, Isaiah being one. There is no pause. We go from the ministry of redemption to the ministry of setting up the kingdom. Now, is the pause between the 69th and 70th week, is it a pause that is because of a plan of God or is it a pause that is because of the rejection of the king? We will not have you to reign over us. Was it God's intention to go right from the 69th week to the 70th week but because the people of Israel rejected Messiah, there was a pause. Now, God knew they would reject him. But if they had not rejected Jesus, there may never have been a pause. There may never have been a church age. There may not have been a need of it. The purpose of the church age, you got to think back on some other scriptures here. Now, we're not going to dig into all of them. purpose of Jesus of G, that, uh, that God went to the Gentiles is to stir the Jews into jealousy and bring they would come back to the Father, the Son and the Messiah that was the purpose of the church age, that they would see how blessed the church is and they would say we should not have rejected Messiah, we need to come back and at the start of the tribulation, 144,000 Jews will repent of rejecting Messiah and receive him to start off the, the tribulation period. I'm on the side that the pause is because of their rejection. God knew there would be their rejection, but he did not put those prophecies in there for the sole purpose of confusing them. He put those prophecies in there jumbled together the way that they were without that space in between because I, I didn't want to have to do this but because of your rejection this is what we have to do. 
And so he went over to the Gentiles. Now again, we're still left with the question, why is Jesus teaching them principles of the millennial kingdom if they are not actually going to go into the millennial kingdom? How can they understand what Jesus is teaching if Jesus is teaching about a different kingdom than they're expecting? Is it just, well, just put this in your noggin and down the road you'll get it? I, I don't think so. <clears throat> the mystery, the mystery of the church, the mystery that was hidden in the Old Testament is not the coming king. It's not the coming kingdom. The mystery is what God would do when the Jews reject the king. That's the mystery. That's what's hidden. What will God do when Israel rejects the king, the Messiah? And this is the mystery. The mystery is that he would still set up his kingdom. And this is the beauty of all this. When Israel did reject the king and his kingdom, the kingdom of the millennial kingdom is delayed. In its place is what's known as a mystery kingdom, which came about. This was hidden from Old Testament saints. It's revealed to New Testament saints. If they want to see it, not everybody wants to see it. There are still people walking around. They don't see it. But the mystery kingdom is this. Well, let me, let me go back to this part. <clears throat> when you have the kingdom of Rome, who sits at the head of that? Caesar. If you were a new visitor to Rome and you asked, can I go and see the king? They would take you to, they would take you to Caesar. If you went to the Babylonian kingdom, I want to see the king. They would take you to the king. If you went to the Persian kingdom, I want to see the king. They would take you to the king. If you went to the Greek kingdom, they would take you to the king. Today, if you go over to Britain, if you go over to Russia, if you go over to wherever it is you go, don't they take you to someone who sits in the office of either king, leader, president? Someone is at the helm. Someone is at the helm. If you come to a believer in this kingdom and they say, take me to your king, where do you take them? If you go into the millennial kingdom and you say, take me to your king, what would you do? You would take them to Jesus because Jesus would be on the throne. But you come into this kingdom right now and they say, take me to your king, where do you take them? Hmm. How can you have a kingdom without a king. Herein is the mystery. The coming millennial kingdom and everything about it is in full operation in the kingdom today. The difference is in the millennial reign what is external and what is physical is internal. In the millennial reign, Jesus will sit on a throne. In the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that we're in, Jesus sits on the throne of your heart. In the coming millennial reign, there will be peace on the earth. In the kingdom that we are in now, there is peace where? In our heart. 
what is external in the millennial kingdom is true internally here. The Spirit of God went from an external dwelling to an internal one. In the millennium, there is joy and abundance. And the same is true on the inside of every believer. There is joy and there is abundance. And Ephesians teaches us about all these things dwelling on the inside of every believer. Now watch this, Luke 17, 20. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, which kingdom are they asking about? The millennial kingdom. He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Every trait of the millennial kingdom is true in us. In the mystery kingdom, we live out the millennial kingdom that would have been if Israel didn't reject their king. But we receive their king. And he reigns in our heart. And he brings about everything that is supposed to be true inside us. But you cannot show people, see, here it is. Observe, see, there it is. You can't do it. We will be able to when the millennial kingdom is actually set up. But not right now. In the Old Testament, there were certain things that were uh, certain, um, what, do you, what do you call them? Um, certain types, certain uh, references, metaphors. That's the word I'm thinking of. There are certain metaphors that were true in the Old Testament and well talked about. The bride of Christ was revealed in the Old Testament. We had uh, one of the prophets was told to take a bride as a representation. We still have that concept in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the concept of sheep, flock, and a shepherd was very strong. In the New Testament, that continues to be. In the Old Testament, they understood father and children. In the New Testament, we still understand father and children. But there is one concept that is used to talk about the kingdom now that was never used in the Old Testament. One concept that you never see show up until the New Testament arrives. And the book of Ephesians does a whole lot of talking about this one concept. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we ever see a description of the body of Christ. That is completely a New Testament metaphor. It's never used in the Old Testament. All the other ones are. Because this is part of that mystery kingdom. This is part of what was not revealed. This body would consist of Jew and Gentile and that they would be on equal footing. The Jew would not be higher. The Gentile would not be higher. The law would no longer be external, but it would be written in our hearts. It would be internal. The rapture is the exit of this church, the exit of this kingdom. And this is not revealed until the mystery is revealed. So in Ephesians, Paul tells us how this kingdom is alive and active in the lives of each and every believer. The Old Testament believer had no idea about the internal realities of the coming kingdom. But we live in that reality. And the book of Ephesians spends its chapters teaching us about that reality. So we said the first three chapters deal with what you have in that reality. And the last three chapters deal with how you put that reality to work. 
In verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. This letter is to all the saints and faithful. As we can see from this, all are saints, but not all are faithful. If you are a saint but not faithful, some of these things in this letter will not pertain to you. Some of these things in this letter you won't be able to get a hold of. This letter is addressed to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. That word there in Ephesus is under question. It is uncertain whether this letter was written to the church of Ephesus or if it was written to the churches of Asia Minor and began its circulation in Ephesus. Some of the earlier manuscripts don't have the word Ephesus in it. It is very possible that is the case. This letter is probably by far Paul's most uh, mature letter. Of, of all, he's not dealing with, with church problems. He's dealing with growth. And certainly Ephesus was the greatest of the churches of that day. It was the strongest. It was the most influential. It was the most mature. It was the most used. There was, it just was, it was quite the church during the, during this time. And that be, may be why its name got put on there. But it could be that it was a letter to all those churches. But we are, we do know that it's in scripture. It's part of scripture. And it's therefore to all of us. As well as it was to them. But if you want all this stuff to work, if you want all this stuff to have access to it, you not only need to be a saint, you need to be faithful. He says here again, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Something I gave to you long ago. Misunderstanding what comes to us by grace or what comes to you by works will cause us to be in a state that lacks peace. You can see the confusion in the lives of many Christians. They think that what comes by grace comes because they work. Or what they work for comes by grace. That will lead to a state that, that will lack peace. But if you fully understand the grace of God, this comes to me because of the grace of God. This comes to me because of a work. If you fully understand the difference between the two things, what comes to you by grace and what comes to you by works, you will walk in the peace of God. It is our lack of understanding of those things when we confuse them. Something that God says, this comes to you by grace and I'm trying to work for it. I won't be at a place of peace. Something that God says, this comes to you when you, when you work for it. There, there's some work you have to do. There's something that is on your end. If you do this, I will do that. That's a, that's a thing that involves some of your work. And if you don't do that work, if you're thinking, well, God will give it to me on His grace, you're not going to have that peace. But if you understand grace, you will have peace. Most times that we lack peace in our lives, it's because we have muddied the waters in the area of grace. I'm either thinking that something is in grace that is not, or something that is not that is. I wrote this in your outline for you. Grace is acts of provision for God's glorification. Grace are acts of provision for God's glorification. Grace Acts by God, these are things that He does to provide for us something. He provides for us forgiveness. He provides for us salvation. Things that He provides for us for His glorification, not ours. It is for His. I activate that provision when I come into the understanding of the grace or the truth that is behind it. Works are actions of faith and obedience leading to promotion. Works are actions of faith, not acts of provision. They are actions of faith and obedience leading to promotion. And I activate promotion in my life by doing or believing what God commands. 
That's how we get promoted. That's how God moves us up. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. <clears throat> how are we blessed with the spiritual blessings? Many times we can read that. We get excited. All oh, glory to God. I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. But if I don't know what those blessings are, if I don't know how I've been blessed with those things, if I don't know what it means in the heavenly places, it's not going to help me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. One of the keys to this is I need to be in Christ. And so I did a a search in the Bible came up with just three things to keep you focused on being in Christ. Three things that will keep you focused in being in Christ. Because if I'm not in Christ, then I'm not going to receive those things. The first thing is found in Galatians 3.27. I'm not reading the scriptures. I put the reference there for you to look up later. Here's the summary of it. Baptized into Christ. We need to be baptized into Christ. That's what Galatians is talking to us about. Being baptized into Christ. If I'm going to be in Christ, well, first of all, I need to be baptized into Christ. Secondly, Romans 6, 3, baptized into his death. Romans talks about being baptized into his death. And baptized there just means immersed. Just think of it as being immersed. Immersed into Christ. Immersed into his death. And third is 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, baptized or immersed into his body. You're going to see those three baptisms talked about in Scripture. Those three immersions. And so I put, a, put these another way just to summarize these. You can write these in if you want to. First is, baptized into Christ. This is receiving His gift of salvation. If I'm going to be baptized into Christ, I'm going to be born again. I'm going to receive His gift of salvation. You can't start this process unless you're born again. I've got to come to a place where I receive Jesus as my Savior and I receive that act. If I don't, I'm not going to be in Christ. But there's a whole lot of people that have received Jesus Christ, been born again, that are not what we would call in Christ. Not in this place. The second part, baptized into His death. Some I summarize it this way. Becoming like Him in suffering and self Lessness. When he went into his death, he went into his suffering. The Word of God talks about us coming into his sufferings. Not into the death that he did. We don't have to do that again. But we do have to go into his sufferings. And that selflessness. He didn't do it for anything of himself. He himself didn't want to do it. But he put himself away and he went after the purpose that God has. Not only do you need to be born again, you've got to get yourself to that place where you embrace, become immersed in the sufferings that are coming to you because you are born again. And that you walk in that selflessness that is there. And here's the third part. Baptized into His body. That we are engaging in our part of His purpose. Just because I'm suffering, just because I'm selfless, doesn't mean I'm helping anybody. I got to engage the part that He has for me, the purpose that He has put on my life. I've got to engage it. I got to know about it, and I got to put it to, to work, and I got to see that as being important. The enemy is always trying to tell us your part's not important. Your part, ah, uh, you need to go after something more. So I summarize it this way, receiving his gift of salvation, becoming like him in suffering and selflessness and engaging in our part of his purpose. Now what's interesting about this verse, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. That particular way it phrases this, it's called locative, <clears throat> Locative, and what the, <clears throat> what this means is, these spiritual blessings are in the same location as we are 
if we are in Christ. In Christ are all these spiritual blessings. And we are taken and put right in there with the blessings. Which means the blessings are all around you if you are in Christ. And that involves more than just being born again. I gotta get beyond that. I gotta get to that place where I engage, I get baptized into His death. I gotta get even more than that, and I gotta become engaged into His purpose. I gotta do what He called me to do. I gotta understand His purpose for me. I've gotta pursue it. I have a part of the body. The part of the, the body of Christ is only known in the New Testament. That analogy is never used anyplace else. That is a New Testament teaching. That is an aspect of the kingdom that we have in the New Testament. This internal kingdom. So, I just gave you some blank space there. I put in about 11 spiritual blessings. This is not meant to be all-inclusive. You can probably figure out some other ones than that. I'm in there, but this is sure enough to get us get us started. <clears throat> Some of the blessings, some of the spiritual blessings that come our way. Redemption. We have been redeemed. Bought back. Forgiveness. That's a blessing. We didn't earn it. We couldn't buy it. But we were given it. Forgiveness. Peace. The peace of God. That is a spiritual blessing. You look at the world, they're not in peace. They don't have that same thing that we do. Joy. Joy is a spiritual blessing. How many people out there would love to have joy in their life? And they don't have it. It is a spiritual blessing. Grace. That we can walk in the grace of God. Some people can't walk in the grace of God. They can only walk in works. I don't want it if I don't earn it. If I didn't earn it, I don't have any right to it. No, we understand grace. We understand that God loves grace. That he wants to, by grace, pour out things to us. And we just say, we receive it. It is a spiritual blessing. Mercy. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. I'm just going to receive it. There is mercy from God. The enemy is always trying to tell us we're disqualified for mercy. But God says, "Uh uh-uh. That is a spiritual blessing. Mercy is there for you. Understanding. That is a spiritual blessing. You understand things that the world is just bewildered at. They cannot understand these things. They can't grab hold of them. In the parables that Jesus was talking about, there was many people around there, they couldn't understand what the disciples understood. Understanding is a spiritual blessing. Wisdom. Wisdom that comes from God, that's a spiritual blessing. When you look at some of the stupidity that people walk in today, they can't even tell a boy from a girl. The stupidity they walk in. I thank God for the wisdom of God. That we can walk according to a higher wisdom. That is a spiritual blessing. Revelation. That God would just open up your eyes. And you would see things that you hadn't seen before. Boy, every time that that opens up. God opens up something to us. And we see something. Boy, that doesn't just get you excited. Oh, wow. Just like opening a present. Oh, I didn't see that before. Oh, look at that. Oh, wow. We can get excited. Revelation. That is a spiritual blessing. Our inheritance. And Ephesians talks about us finding out what is in that inheritance. That is a spiritual blessing. Crowns. That God gives crowns for certain things that we would do here on the earth. That is a spiritual blessing. And what he's telling you is, in Christ, you are locked in to the same area where all those spiritual blessings are. You're actually... Rubbing, rubbing shoulders with them. Rubbing elbows. They're all over. They're right next to you. And then some Christians would be in that place and beg God to give it to them. God says, they're, they're all around you. They're right there. Because if I understand what he is saying here in just this opening verses, these spiritual blessings, I am locked in to where they are if I am in Christ. I'm locked in. They're all around me. I don't have to ask God to bring them to me. I'm in Christ. Those spiritual blessings are in Christ. So we're in this together. We don't need to pick and choose or decide which ones we qualify for. Because God qualified for us all. All, every single one of them. 
joy, grace, mercy, understanding, wisdom, revelation, inheritance, crowns, redemption, forgiveness, peace, you name it. God has already qualified you for it. I don't need to pick. All right, you got 20 things out there. Give me five you want. I don't have to pick them. Because I want them all. And, and God says, all right. They're all ours. We're qualified for them. <clears throat> Word of God says here, in verse 3 again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. That's past tense. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. If there is a blessing in the Spirit, you have been blessed with it. It does not matter what it is. Oh, I didn't know about that one. I wonder if I'm blessed. Yes, you are. Is it a spiritual blessing? Is it something that blesses your spirit? Is it something that has spiritual value? It's yours. Don't go out there trying to qualify yourself. This is just Paul just introducing the, the letter here. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing He has already blessed us with those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Yeah, well, those things are for when I get to heaven. No, they are now. Don't look at anything. Well, that'll happen when the millennial kingdom gets here. You're not understanding the mystery. The mystery is to take everything that is external in the millennial kingdom and to make it internal with you. Everything about the millennial kingdom is internal with you. Now. Not later. It is that way now. Now, if I don't have any of these blessings, or if I'm lacking on any of these blessings, is it God's fault? It is not. If it is not, why do we ask God for it? If I can answer the question, all right, I know it's not God's fault. If I don't have any of those blessings, it must be my fault. Then why do we keep asking God for it? God, I need more joy in my life. Now, where's the scripture that says ask for wisdom? But if you ask for wisdom, what's he say? He gives it to you. Father God, I don't know what to do in that situation. I ask you for wisdom on it. I thank you I receive it. He's, you blessed me with it. I thank you for it. Now, many of these blessings are taught in this epistle. But without understanding, these blessings do us no good. Now, it says in heavenly places. Because this is before the foundation of the earth. As he says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Are these spiritual blessings new? They've been around. They've probably been around before the earth was even here. So where else are you going to put them? These are spiritual blessings. They're in heaven. They're in the heavenly places. I made a note on this before. All physical blessings have their root in spiritual blessings. All physical blessings have their root in spiritual blessings. Get the spiritual blessing, you'll see a something physical. Now, in Christ, it says that this phrase, and and like ones, in Christ, in Him, stuff like that, you're going to see this is used ten times in verses 3 through 13. One unique thing about the verses 3 through 13 is that in the original Greek, I am told by those who know the language better than I, that that is all one sentence. Verse 3 through verse 13 are all one sentence. (laughs) I wonder what Paul's English teacher thought about that. But this phrase, just in these, these verses are used ten times. I saw a note that somebody made that if you went through and counted all of the references to things like in him, in whom, in Christ, any similar teaching like that, that it occurs 120 times in the epistle. 
I did my own count. I only came up with about 107. But uh, that was just counting the word in in there and, and trying to, to branch off from there. But I didn't go through and try and find them all and try and count them. That's usually something that Dakes would do. I didn't see if he had done that. Should have pulled his out and seen he had a little number over there. How many times that was that was done. But in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us. Now, a lot of people get hung up on this and, and the, the next time we're, we're going to see the predestination thing going. But they get hung up on this. He chose us. Uh, but don't get hung up on this. It's going to be a simple matter if we had a group of people here and I came on out and said, how many people would like to play a game of softball? And you have a group of maybe 50 people. Not all 50 people are going to want to play. Some people are going to say, well, I'm too sore. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm not athletic. But out of that 50 people, you may have 20 people who raise their hands. I'll play. And so you choose those 20. Why? Did you discriminate against the other people? No, you simply asked, who wants to play softball? And 20 people were all right, we choose you guys. Let's go. And so that was our group to choose. But the reason that they were chosen is simply because they, they, they put themselves into place. If I don't put myself in a place where I say yes to Jesus, I put myself in Christ, I can't be chosen for anything. I'm not part of the group. Because, but it was my decision. But, but God knew who was going to raise their hand and say, I want to be, I want to be there. And so, for most people who would say, I want to be there, he chose, alright, I want you all, I'm going to choose you for this over here, and then you all, I'm going to choose you for this over here, and then you all, I'm going to choose you for this over here. And he began to choose out of that group who said yes to go out there and to function in different things. He didn't predestine them to choose him, but he took those who chose him and planned out where they would go because they chose him. He did this before the foundation of the, of the earth. Now, how many of you have here have never sinned before the foundation of the earth? I'm in that group. Before the foundation of the earth, I, w- I have never sinned. Anybody else in that boat? Yeah, there's a couple more. Yeah, uh, We all are. Because you were not alive. Therefore, you couldn't sin. So if he chose you before the foundation of the earth, he chose you before you could have done anything. Therefore, anything that you did couldn't cause you to be unchosen. Isn't that right? Doesn't he already know? Doesn't the devil come up to you all the time and say, well, you haven't done this, you haven't, you won't, you refused. And he keeps trying to play back the videotape on our life. You don't qualify for what God wants you to do. But if he chose us before the foundation of the earth, and he knew you are going to be here, then he also knew the things you might do. And he has a way to overcome those things that I did, just like he had a way to overcome the things that Paul did and get Paul back into the right place. He had a way to overcome the things that David did and get David in the right place. He had a way to overcome the things that Abraham did and get him back in the right place. He had a way to overcome the things that Jacob did and get him back into the right place. Shall we keep going? He has a way, no matter what, to get you on the direction of what he chose you to do. You might be out there and, you know, you come out to a group of people and you say, who wants to play softball? And you might be looking out there and say, boy, so-and-so, they look like they're fast. I I sure hope that they decide to play. And if they are, I hope I can get them on my team. And so, um, then you, you, you start, you're picking from there and you're looking, you're looking. And then finally that person, they raise their, oh, good. All right, we, we got them in there and we, we put them on. And, uh, that's all God does. God doesn't come over there and reject anybody. You know, we, I mean, even we as people are, are better than that. 
we used to have a, we used to play hockey. You'd, we would pick sides, and you know who we would pick sides from? The people who showed up. We don't always know who's going to show up. But when the people are there, we would pick sides. All right, well, let's put this one here and this one here. And our goal was to make the team somewhat even. Because if you have a lopsided team, it's no fun to play. But you could pick from whoever came. We involved 100% of them. Whether they were new, whether they were old, didn't matter. We involved 100% of them. And we got them involved. God will involve 100% of the people who say, I want to be part of the team. Who answer the call. Who choose Jesus. He will choose them. He says, before the foundation of the world, He chose you. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Now, I didn't give you this blank in here, but make sure you write this one down. Are you second-guessing God's wisdom? If God chose you for a particular purpose and you tell Him, I don't think I'm qualified for that, are you not second-guessing God's wisdom? Are you not second-guessing that you know better than He does? No, if He says, I chose you before the foundation of the, per- of, of the world for this particular purpose, we say, yes, sir. Then we go on. If He chose you Who are you to reject you? And just think about that. If he chose you, who are you to reject you? And this isn't in there, but you could put this in there too. If he chose somebody else in the body of Christ, who are you to reject them? Yet we do it. Don't be, don't be messing with it. You're not going to disqualify yourself from your calling, your purpose, your gifting, your worthiness, your healing. He knows all the things you would do and He still provided all that stuff for you. Now this part here, holy and without blame, we're going to leave this for later on because later on He's going to talk about it more. There's a lot of things that are made about Jesus coming back for a church that is perfect and it just rubs me the wrong way when I hear people say, well, the church isn't perfect yet, so he can't come. Ah, uh, if that's the case, then we have to stop getting people born again right now. And just focus on getting people developed. No more born again, no more, we just put a closed on the door. We don't want any new members. We don't want any new converts. We're just gonna spend, spend the time getting everybody here holy and perfect. But when we get to that section, we'll, we'll understand it more. But he says here in this, in this verse, we'll just take it from what he says here. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Holy and without blame. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to get to a place of being holy and without blame before him, I'm going to need some help. I'm not going to get there on my own. So we wrap this up here this way. This is just the introduction getting into the into the book. Are you waiting for the kingdom? Are you waiting for the kingdom or are you living the kingdom? Are you waiting for the kingdom that is promised, the kingdom that is to come, or are you now living the kingdom? 1 John 4 verse 17, you all know this verse. Keith, I believe, read it last week. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. The kingdom that is to come is alive in you now. Which is why Jesus taught His disciples a truth that they thought dealt with a kingdom that is yet future because it didn't matter. The kingdom that was yet future was going to be in them. 
and he could teach about that kingdom and they could hear about that kingdom and it would still teach them about the kingdom they were going to enter. Because what was external in the millennial kingdom is internal now. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this book and the light that it will give us into our Christian walk and the things that you have made available to us. We thank you for the things we will learn on this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.